0: It is the grapevine and this Saturday uh, the AFL is staging its first ever Pride game being played between the Saints and Sydney at Docklands and the Saints will be wearing guernseys with rainbow coloured numbers and Sydney will have rainbow socks and the goal umpires will be waving rainbow flags through the match and Jason Ball's come in to talk with us about it. He's a well-known advocate for the AFL becoming more inclusive particularly of LGBTQI fans, players and staff. A footballer himself who plays with Yarra Glenn and uh, has been travelling around to clubs and spoken public publicly about the support he got from teammates at his local club when he told them he was gay back in 2012. Uh, and he also speaks a lot about the harm of homophobic language and and the impact it can have on fans and players and uh, he recently ran as a greens candidate for the federal seat of Higgins he wears many hats and it's really great to have you in at triple r and uh, I heard actually someone uh, from the Saints speaking about this pride game um, with pride um, you know a couple of weeks ago and saying that it really was a, a talk that you gave them down at St Kilda that inspired the club to get behind it and I wonder what he you, what are you telling people what are you saying when you go and visit clubs
1: oh well, that's lovely feedback to hear i think it's because the power of a personal story to reach people and to connect with people on an emotional level not just a level of rational thought and logic but to actually talk about your own experiences and get people to feel what you are feeling or to be able to relate to the story um you know my story is one of figuring out that I was gay and thinking that it was the worst possible thing that I could be because of the language that people use whether it's the word gay to mean bad or weak or soft or disgusting you know when I figured out that that was me or what other people would think about me that crushed me and the football club felt like the one place that I would never be able to come out because homophobic language and homophobic behavior was such a common and accepted part of the game whether it's coming from over the fence or from my coach or from my own teammates and I guess I, my story I share about always second-guessing everything that I said or did out of fear that they would figure it out, never getting involved in conversations about relationships or what I was doing on the weekend. I even went to the extent of creating a separate Facebook list so that all of my football teammates wouldn't see places I was checked into, photos I was tagged in, or what my relationship status was, because I was out in all other areas of my life, but the football club felt like the one place that I wouldn't be accepted. I thought I'd get kicked off the team, I thought I'd get bullied, and so went to you know really great lengths to hide that to the detriment of, I guess, my own mental health and well-being, and probably limiting the kinds of friendships and bonds that I could have developed with my teammates during those years.
2: And, and so what was it like at Yarra Glen when, when you did come out and, and your teammates found out that, that you were gay. What was that process like?
1: At the end of the day, I guess I'd made a promise to myself that if I got asked about it, that I wouldn't lie because you know lying hadn't gone so well in the past when it came to making up stories about girls. I had no idea what I was talking about, um, and secondly, you know it's exhausting to maintain fabricated stories with all of the follow-up questions you get. But it turned out that there was only so much that I could hide and I guess the thing that was like this massive weight getting lifted off my shoulders was when my teammates sort of reach out to me in one way or another and there's some great stories about how that happened to say in one way or another that we know that you're gay and it's not a big deal to us and at that point I guess I'd never felt more part of the football club than I had in my whole life I felt like I could talk to them about anything and I kind of felt silly for thinking that I had to hide it for so long but I came to the understanding that a lot of the homophobic language and homophobic behaviour coming from my teammates wasn't coming from a place of hatred towards me or towards the gay community, but rather a place of ignorance. And so I kind of felt like I had an opportunity now to raise awareness about that and to educate not only them but other football players across the state and across the country and at the same time thinking back to when I was young and struggling to come to terms with my sexuality especially in that football environment if I had have known of such thing as a gay footballer if I had have known that he could be out to his teammates and it wouldn't be a big deal um, that would have made a huge difference to me
2: and I mean football clubs, football games can be at times hostile environments. Was there real regret from from those friends and, and people you played with that they you know caused caused offense throughout those years?
1: There actually was surprisingly. So I had a number of players come up and talk to me and want to apologize if they had said anything that made me feel like I wasn't welcome in the club, you know, putting up their hands saying they were probably the worst offenders when it came to using this kind of language and they'd never thought about it before. But I think my coming out made it real for them that, you know, this language would have an impact on me and I'm one of their teammates and they need me to be at my best so that they can be at their best so that we can win games of football. So it just made sense. Uh, for them to stop using that language and it didn't happen overnight but it did happen that that completely faded from their vocabulary and you know I think that I even had players tell me about you know that when they would it would come out you know they'd use a word like fag or homo or pufta or something like that and then they'd catch themselves and they'd look around and they were hoping that I wasn't there or I hadn't heard them and then that, that all of a sudden that filter became there uh because it was uh you know real for them because hey they have a gay teammate
0: and so with with the the pride game that's coming up on the weekend jason the idea behind it isn't about you know i mean mean, it's about giving permission to be people to be who they are and be included in the game but it's not about saying oh who's gonna which football is gonna come out now it's about the fans too isn't it it's about making making the afl um an inclusive environment and and a safe environment for people is that how you see it
1: absolutely i think it's definitely at all levels uh and there's so many people involved in the game in different ways and in all of those areas you need to make sure it's a safe and inclusive place i mean yes it would be great if there were afl players who felt comfortable to come out and it's not their responsibility to create a safe environment it's our responsibility to make that a welcoming inclusive environment so if they want to then they can or they feel comfortable doing it but no one should be forced out of the closet i definitely want to make that point uh, but when it comes to the fans, a lot of the research shows that AFL is one of the games where they don't feel welcome in uh, or included. They don't feel safe uh, holding their partner's hand in the stands, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, and there is a lot of homophobic language uh, in the crowd. And so the AFL are working on on tackling that to make it a game that everyone can feel safe and welcome at, regardless of their sexuality. And so how how did we get to the the inaugural Pride game this weekend? Has
2: the AFL been kind of quick to move on this through the advocacy that, that you've advanced or do you see that it's been kind of coming for a long time?
1: I think it has been coming for a long time because when I came out in 2012, I started a petition on change.org calling on the AFL to do more to tackle homophobia and we suggested in the petition, you know, what's the top goal? What can you aim for? And the idea was a pride round similar to how they have an indigenous round, a women's round, a multicultural Mm -hmm. round and you know that felt like it could be a really great thing to you know make the game more inclusive and reach out to this community and we also asked the AFL to screen no to homophobia ads on the big screen um they ended up doing that during the preliminary finals that year and throughout the uh the next season but a pride round sort of I think was I think maybe even to my naivety um you know when it comes to the indigenous round um that was an initiative that started between Essendon and Richmond it was one game and it was eventually over over many years grown the
0: whole round grown yeah.
1: to what it is and so from that point uh, where this idea came from is it was actually my football team in Yarra Glen who decided to do a Pride Cup out in the grassroots in the Yarra Valley and we painted the 50 metre line in a rainbow. Uh, we had rainbow incorporated into the jumpers of different teams and it was actually the most incredible day in terms of how many people showed up from the local community and also from the city. Like we had about four times as many people come who usually come to a home and away game out in the Yarra Valley country footy and we had the feedback that we had from people on that day was uh, from the LGBTI community specifically was that it was the first time they'd ever felt welcome and safe at the footy and I think it's it was a message of acceptance coming from a place where you expected the least, which was what was so special about it. And that, I guess, was what uh, led the AFL to say, uh, you know, and we invited the AFL to come out to experience the game. They actually sponsored Joy FM to have an outside broadcast at the day. You know, they were really supportive of what we were doing at the grassroots. And I guess they used that as a bit of a testing ground. And it was actually the St Kilda Football Club who engaged with us first out of any AFL club. They had someone from their staff come out and join our organising committee for the Pride Cup for the last two years, so they've been there learning. So you've been running the
0: Pride Cup going, for a little while, then a couple of years.
1: Yes, it's uh, this year was its third year and so that's grown and we've kind of used that as a vehicle to push upwards and, and get the AFL on board and lo and behold uh, Here we, it have, is. we have a Pride game we're going to have a rainbow 50 metre, uh, 50 metre line down at Docklands
0: Yeah, it's um, an amazing story actually it's um, how that sort of grassroots push can actually change what seems to be like an all-powerful organisation the AFL we're speaking with our Jason Ball about the Pride game coming up this Saturday at Docklands and so is it important Important that the, play, the teams playing Jason is St Kilda and Sydney is that important to clubs to start with
1: I think they're great clubs to start with I think it could be any club but I think that what Works for St Kilda is that under their leadership, uh, their CEO Matt Finnis is someone who I think really gets it. He came along and marched at Pride March with me after I came out back in 2013, along with a couple of AFL players, which marked the first time that AFL players had ever taken part in that event. And from that point on, he was uh, he was uh, at the AFL Players Association at the time and invited me to come and share my story to new draftees. That was the inspiration behind them starting a social media campaign pain where they had AFL players pledge that they wouldn't use homophobic language and then when he went to St Kilda he kind of took that agenda with him I guess and the fact that St Kilda is the home of Pride March and as a suburb is known for its diversity so rich um, and St Kilda in terms of their strategy was to really reconnect with the local suburb in a lot of different ways and I think this was one of the ways that they could reconnect with that local community. I think Sydney make a lot of sense being Sydney and home of Mardi Gras very you know diverse um, you know one of the gay capitals of the world um, in my opinion and uh, I think that it's also really great that it has a national focus being a Victorian team versus a New South Wales team because it means that that message will spread beyond just the state of Victoria for this game. And what it's going to do this week is all of the footy talk back and the footy show are going to have an opportunity to have this conversation. And there's mm-hmm. been so much silence around the issue of sexuality or, or homophobia in the game. Um, and that silence is what breeds this sort of the shame and the embarrassment that a gay player or gay fans um would feel but to actually have that visibility now and not just say we're against homophobia but say you know diversity is great and we're going to celebrate that uh is really special
2: and as part of your role role with beyond blue and your your advocacy role i understand you've spoken to a lot of other clubs and and young people do you find that that sort of respect that you um encountered at yarra glen is common among other clubs that you've spoken to
1: I I really use my teammates as kind of role models, I guess, uh, in order for to, to connect, especially if I'm talking to a football club or to an all boys school, so that they can sort of see themselves in my story and they can come to the understanding that saying no to homophobia doesn't make you any less of a man. Um, it just means that you're a good bloke and you're prepared to look out for your mates. You know, you've got to tap into the language with which they understand in order to get that message across, and I've seen that. Has been incredibly successful with all of the schools that I've I've spoken to, and I've often used my talk as a gateway to to get a school to join, say, the Safe Schools Coalition, which I've been an ambassador for as well, um, or to link in with Beyond Blue. Um, you know, they do a lot of great work raising awareness about the impact of homophobia on mental health, and so from a school's perspective or a club's perspective, they've got a responsibility for the well-being of their students or their players, and so to understand that. The LGBTI community are significantly more likely to experience a mental health issue or attempt suicide compared to the rest of the community because of the discrimination and the and the marginalisation that they face is a really good way to get people to feel some responsibility and want to do something.
0: And what about women entering the game at that sort of elite level now, Jason? Is this, uh, I suppose, it's it's good timing in the sense that this more you know being more inclusive in many different ways uh, is kind of, seems to all be kind of happening at, at once uh, is that going to uh help make the game more inclusive as well do you think having women there
1: when it comes to growing the game for women i mean i obviously talking from my experience in male team sport it's actually quite different to the experiences uh, of women and i can just draw upon the women who i know who who play sport and what some of the research says um alex blackwell for example who's the australian cricketer who's one of the only openly gay um women at that at that top level um I think that what women experience in sport It has to be taken in the context of how much sexism there is in sport as well that that men don't experience, and so for many women who are gay playing sport, they're often the bigger problem is sexism as opposed to homophobia. But what we are seeing is that there are kind of the opposite stereotypes for women. So with men, the stereotype that no gay men can play sport, whereas for women, it's anyone who's good at sport must be a lesbian. Both are not true. There's many you know fantastic straight women who play sport, and there's many gay men who play sport, but both are equally damaging in terms of making people feel like they have to stay in the closet in order to play sport. And for women, it's about not lying in the chalk outline that these stereotypes have created for them or say, growing the game at a national level for the AFL. I've heard of a lot of women going back into the closet so that they feel like they're more likely to be drafted or selected for these national teams or, say, the AFL may be trying to shape the game uh, and its image and choosing those women who are more feminine, um, for example, which I think, you know, there's a lot of work to do here. Very problematic, yeah. But there's a lot of, I think, gender stereotypes that are coupled in there, not just homophobia.
0: Yeah, so much to talk about, but we're pretty much out of time. But you are flipping the coin. Who, who knew that was going to happen, <laughs> I, Jason, that you'd be doing that in the, the middle of the of Docklands.
1: Yeah, I got an email from St Kilda Football Club asking me if I'd like to, and my reply was in all caps. I was so excited. <laughs> um, it's just going to be so great. And I think it's lovely that the St Kilda Football Club are really recognizing that this is something that has come from the grassroots. And they are talking about the Yarra Glen Football Club a lot in, in their communication about this game and why they're doing it
2: do you have a, a tip for the game who's going to win
1: um look i think that st kilda are going to have a lot to play for on the day even though premiership points aren't on the table anymore because they lost um the other week to north melbourne um i think that you know i have found that Yarra glenn have won the pride cup every single year that they've played for it and i think that's because they feel a sense of pride and they play with that as well <laughs>
0: Well, maybe the best team win. And I, I do want to quickly, before we let you go, uh, ask about um, your political career because um you, you, you ran an amazing campaign over at Higgins and I think um, you made the incumbent uh, look over a shoulder. Um, <laughs> so, you know, is this the, the last we're going to see of you or first and last or what, what are your plans?
1: Oh, look, we're very proud of the result in Higgins, obviously increasing our vote by almost 10% uh, down in the South and we won, I think, 12 of the 35 booths. across Across the electorate, and we're about 3% away from winning another six. So I think there's a lot of potential in that seat for the Greens. And um, whether I'm a candidate or not, we'll have to wait and see. The Greens uh, have a very grassroots way of doing pre selection. So it's all decided by the local branch. And, um, you know, I'll see what I get up to over the next few years. If that takes me somewhere more interesting than being a federal MP, then I won't be. But, you know, I think being a federal MP would be pretty great.
0: Yeah, well, who knows what you're going to do next. And um, good on you for being really the inspiration behind this um pride game and um congratulations for all the work that you've been doing and thanks for coming to triple r today jason it's really great to meet you
1: thanks for having me on
0: and jason ball he's um footballer with yarrow Glen, although i don't think he's playing this season maybe next season and uh he'll be flipping the coin down at the pride game st kilda v sydney uh this saturday at docklands and hopefully it will be a full house down there for that really important game <laughs> on the Grapevine Triple R, and there's been a lot of focus on banks in the past couple of weeks. Last week, the Prime Minister kind of told them off for not passing on the full interest rate cut. He wants them to front up to a House of Reps committee annually now to justify their commercial decisions, which apparently they're really happy to do, and um, probably because it's not a Royal Commission which the ALP and others have been calling for. But what's in our best interests, and do we need government to rein in the power of the big banks? Uh, Jared Brody, CEO of the Consumer Action Law Centre. And it's really great to have you with us, Jared, because it's sort of, you know, this seems like a bit of a pantomime happening uh, at the federal level with banks. But are we seeing a change in approach from the federal government to the big banks? Is asking them to front up to a committee going to change their behaviour, do you think?
3: Oh, look, I I don't know whether it's going to change their behaviour, but look, it is um, something new, a new obligation on the bank, so it will have some impact on their operations, but you're right. running up to a committee is very different from a, a royal commission that would have a sort of wide-ranging um, uh, powers and, and investigations into the operation of the industry, and particularly whether these banks, our um, big majors, are, are really too big, um, and the fact that they own, um, you know, most of the, you know, uh, the, the big products in the marketplace, but also um, all the distribution strategies, the financial planners and and the way in which tellers and so on um, are remunerated for selling particular products. Um, I think these sort of conflicts of interest um, would be something that be looked at at a Royal Commission, whereas an inquiry to look at um, interest rates probably wouldn't consider those issues.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because in, in a way, they're as big as that because we've let them get that big and this idea now that they're too big to fail but they're also too big to jail and these are the two things that you you hear a lot is that a lot went wrong with in the Commonwealth Bank and and other I mean you can take a look at any bank and you can see that there's some scandals there but I mean what's the sense where you sit at the uh, Consumer Action Law Centre whether it's in consumer interest to, to push for a Royal Commission or to push for banks to be reined in?
3: Look, I do think a royal commission into the finance sector would benefit um, consumers by really focusing on how we can better prevent Australians falling victim to poor con- conduct in, in the finance sector um, and how we can also, I guess, bring sort of greater fairness and integrity um, to the cultures behind our big banks. But at the same time, I, you know, a uh, Royal Commission will take many years. It will be very expensive and there's probably some things that we could do right now uh, to improve conduct in the finance sector and ensure customers are getting a better deal out of our bigger banks. Um, just uh, last year, we had... a uh, a couple of, uh, a, a year long inquiry or more into the finance sector the financial system inquiry headed by David Murray. He was actually an ex um, bank chief, ex-CEO of the Commonwealth Bank. But in fact his inquiry report recommended some really transformative reforms um, that would, I think, um, if implemented uh, mean that um, the, the balance will be tipped back in favour of customers if you like. Um, so just a couple of those reforms that he recommended. One was to give um, our regulator, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission Emission, a power to go in and change or ban particular products if they were unfair to customers. Um, at the moment, the regulator can't really, you know, prevent harm before it occurs. Um, and, and when there is a scandal, it get it get it gets blamed. But really, its role is to pick up the pieces. At the moment, it isn't a preventative role. And if if the Murray Inquiry reforms were put in place, then I think that would be changed.
2: And recently, um, the, the banks, I suppose, essentially had a win at the High Court with um, the High court uh, upholding um, the ANZ's late fee charges. They had a a class action against them on the credit card fees that were being charged by the big banks. Will will there be any flow on from this or is that kind of the, the end we've heard of it, do you think?
3: Oh, look, I'm hoping there will be some more pressure being placed on um, the banks, but also our parliamentarians to really fix this up. I think it was a very poor decision, a very disappointing decision of um, the High Court. Really what it said, um, you know, for for these sort of fees, like late payment fees um, or fees for overdrawing your account, um, they're what's called as contingent fees. They're not fees that customers think they're going to be charged. Um, It's not like your interest rate or your monthly fee, which you generally consider when... Um, choosing a particular product, uh, these fees are sort of back end they 're hidden and so competition doesn 't really play a role to keep them down and, and you will see that many of the banks do charge you know thirty thirty five dollars um, for these sort of fees um, and, and the economic point is that the, those sort of fees that, that competition doesn 't play a role in keeping down should really be limited to the, the cost incurred by the bank when you are late paying on your credit card. Now, in this case, the High Court um, sort of really broadens the types of costs that could be considered in that calculation um, and included sort of uh, future costs that may or may not be incurred and it was a really bank-friendly decision in my view and I think now um, we've really got to get our parliament to look more closely at this um, and really ensure that uh, these sort of fees, not just by banks but late like payment fees by telcos or the utility companies, really only um, reflect the actual cost incurred by the provider, not, not a greater... Uh, greater
0: price banks need a social license to operate uh, uh, and i think this is really clear jared that we need to have faith in them but that needs to to kind of come back to to us as customers as well that we needed to be treated fairly and properly by such powerful institutions is our faith in banks declining do you think
3: Look, it does seem that the trust in our financial se- sector more broadly is, does seem to be declining. And I think the scandals that we've seen, particularly in, in financial advice before there were reforms in that sector, but also in uh, life insurance more recently, um, we've heard saw the, the Four Corners investigation into CommonSure earlier this year. Um, and I think that scandals in life insurance could have been avoided if we had better regulation and oversight of this se- sector. And that's what really contributes. To, to trust and confidence. Um, you know, if we do have strong consumer protections that mean that people can, you know, know that the bank is going to treat them fairly and not take advantage of them, um, th- then that's what drives um, that, that trust and confidence. And at the moment, I think our regulation has been a bit too weak um, and it's meant that um, these providers have been able to get away with, with treating people in pretty vulnerable situations, particularly those, you know, that need to call on that life insurance because they've lost their job or they've... Um, you know, suffered a significant trauma or illness, um, they're in a pretty vulnerable position um, and the banks have been... Pre- some of them have been treating them pretty shabbily.
0: And, I, I mean, uh, one quote that did make me think um, during the week last week was when we saw um, ALP Senator Sam Dastiari say that we're more likely, statistically speaking, to change our spouse than our bank. And I wonder whether, uh, you know, consumers should be really... Moving their, their financial interests or moving their money if they're getting a raw deal. Do you think that is just too hard to, to do that?
3: Well, of course, I'd encourage anyone to, um, to look out for a better deal and there are better deals out there um, particularly from some perhaps some of the the smaller banks or the credit unions um, and and some of the big banks even offer um, better deals when you ring up and ask them rather than uh, to existing customers to you think you'd usually get loyalty discounts but it commonly works the other way Um, but yeah I did see Senator Dastiari's comment as well which I think is a correct one. Um,
0: I checked it and it is correct. Statistically, I I mean, look, we have, you know, if you're going by divorce rates or whatever, but it did make me just go, oh, (laughs) we're very loyal, but maybe false loyalty.
3: I think that's right and I think one of the reasons we are loyal is, well there's a couple one is that um, it's very difficult to change providers, Um, you know all the paperwork um, that's got to be put in place, many people have all their direct debits and and their pays lined up with particular accounts and to rearrange all that is probably a day or two's work which people don't have the time and and having to call up banks and other providers to get those things in place and the second reason is i think many people think well then other banks just going to treat me the same so what's the what's the point of switching
2: um yeah well, well i think people i mean there's a lot of bank bashing that goes on and i think um the idea of having a, a royal commission for example is something that a lot of australians would think was um pretty reasonable for banks but do you think also jared that that people feel really powerless that that they're locked into something with their banks and whatever they do as you say they're, they're going to get a raw deal wherever they go
3: yeah i think i think that's right and i uh, one of the issues that you can look clearly at that is um, uh, credit card lending the credit card interest rates um, are really eye watering despite um, the reserve bank uh cutting you know interest rates to 1.5% the lowest they've you know, ever been. Credit card interest rates are still, um, for, for many major banks up to 18 to 20% for those reward cards. Um, and if people aren't able to pay back their, um, you know, their full balance by the due date, then they'll be whacked with that interest, which will really just ensure that, um, that, that they're carrying uh, you know, loads of um, um, interest-bearing debt for a long period of time really debilitating their financial situation.
0: Well, let's see if um, calling banks be- before a, um, a House of Reps committee um, does something. Uh, apparently, the, the PM thinks it will change culture, but I, I suppose that remains to be seen. Thanks so much for talking with us today, Jared. Thanks, Coolia. Thanks, Dylan. It's our Joe Brody, he's CEO of the Consumer Action Law Centre. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. It is the grapevine on R, and a lot has happened since we last had Adjunct Professor Muriel Bamflet on R. She's CEO of VACA, Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Care Agency. We now have a Royal Commission into Juvenile Justice in the NT, but we have vulnerable children here in Victoria as well, and um, Muriel's been a, an amazing advocate over many, many years for vulnerable children in Victoria, and it's really great to have you, Muriel, and I think a lot has happened. It's just been a month since ah, we had you in last. I
4: know, a lot has happened, yeah. I- I've been to Gama. Oh, to did Gama. you go? Did yep. you? I didn't yep. even know that. Yep. Um, and it was a wonderful, um, wonderful time. I'm not very good at camping, but um, yeah, a great experience. <laughs> beautiful country <laughs> a out very there. very beautiful country.
0: And so, I mean, it's interesting then to, to speak about Gama because we know that Indigenous Affairs Minister Nigel Scullion did a speech there. I don't know if you saw it, but what was the feel, feeling in uh, the Northern Territory and at Gama following um, not only the revelations of um, you know, the national revelations of what's been going on in, in one centre in, in the Northern Territory, but that feeling that, that Indigenous children all over the country are not being treated
4: right. I think that, um, there are a lot of people there that, I mean, certainly GAM is a time where we celebrate young people and we saw lots of dancing. There was, um, a particularly a focus on young people and young people were quite, um, angry, um, at, you know, the stereotyping that they were the, um, perpetrators rather than you know the victims and so there was a lot of focus um a lot of people were speaking about the fact that we don't want to focus just on the 22 children that were in dondale but actually looking at what's happening for all young people children and young people in the northern territory so it's really great that mick good has been selected um clearly he's got a passion i've spoken to him he think he knows that it's a big challenge and um certainly is going to draw on experience from aboriginal people across the nation to sort of inform him in that inquiry because he thinks it's important that um, we he hears the voice of Aboriginal people. And, he, and he's just
0: and he's just come. I mean, he's coming up to the end of his five yeah. years. I understand as commissioner. So this is a pretty amazing place for him
4: to be going next to to head up or co be co convener of this um, yeah. um, commission. I think it's it's massive, and I think that you know he looked really tired, and I I just said to him, are you, "How are you feeling?" And he said, "Oh, I." I just have to do this I just have to do this and he knows and I think it's something great to end on I think it's you know it gives him something uh you know he's done such an amazing just job as a social justice commissioner but he's just finalizing his last report so he's got a lot on his plate but he's, he's really up for it.
0: I, I know we, we've had him on this program numerous mm. times over the last five years. And one thing that he said when, oh, you know, one of the last times we had him on is that he wanted to see the referendum happen. Yeah. yeah. And that was something he wanted to see as, as commissioner take place. And look, I, I don't know where you feel we're at, Muriel, but it doesn't, um, you know, look like it's going to happen on the trajectory that was set out, um, a couple of years ago.
4: Yeah. And no, I look, when you hear, um, politicians trying, You know, this morning even listening to politicians they're saying they're trying to push it out a little bit long because we can't agree on the words and um, no one's seen the words yet, Um, we don't know what's in it so it's very difficult to sign up to a constitutional recognition when you don't know what the words are and what's in it for Aboriginal people are we going to be in the preamble what's it actually going to change, we don't know at this stage so it's very difficult to even comment on but um, there's a big push and I mean Victoria's starting to talk about treaty and so you know there are a lot of people that are totally rejecting constitutional recognition and so the conversation has to be had about will constitutional recognition take the place of treaty but i know that you know particularly in victoria we're really really strong on that we want you know the commonwealth government to agree to a treaty with first peoples
2: and you're involved in a steering committee here in victoria on on how to advance a treaty where's that out How's that how's that process going so far
4: yeah, look, a lot. Um, we've had a number of meetings, and so there's been a steering committee established by the Victorian government, and that came out of a number of self-determination forums that were held across Victoria. And so um, Aboriginal people in- did say that they wanted a treaty, <coughs> excuse me. And so we're really wanting to move with a treaty in Victoria. So a steering committee has been established, and we're starting to look at. Um, a number of representative um, you know putting up a number of models to the Aboriginal community to consult on so where um, a number of those models will um, be looking at how do you actually um, you know consult with and how will we establish a treaty with the Victorian government so um, I think this, this government has really signalled that it wants to sign a treaty with the First Peoples. What we're looking at is whether we have one broader treaty agreement or whether we have a number of individual treaty agreements with different nations of Victorian, um, communities. So, um, it's very exciting times in Victoria and I think that it's, um, it, it it's an opportunity, I think, to write and, and Victoria already has in the constitution Recognition of Aboriginal people, and and I think that you know there's a very strong sense of social justice in Victoria. Mm.
0: And I wonder, uh, Muriel, the effect on children when talking about a treaty. Whether you see that that's going to be beneficial to the children you work with, and also the community in which you're working with the with the childcare um, agency. Whether a treaty and and that sort of recognition and uh, is is going to be beneficial to their their well-being
4: yeah look i mean it's it's already it already is i mean with the premier committing to self-determination we have a minister jenny mccacus and she's um really been driving a reform agenda around self-determination for aboriginal people um she's already funded um a, a, aboriginal organizations to undertake guardianship which is the transfer of authority for aboriginal children back to aboriginal um organizations that's something that's happened in canada and america canada for a number of years and, and it's certainly you know demonstrating success there but she's also committed to transferring all aboriginal children in out-of-home care back to aboriginal organizations now that's a massive feat 1500 aboriginal children it, They're not going to do it, obviously, um, without, you know, careful consideration and the safety of children. But as Aboriginal people, we really want to be doing it. Um, We did an as-if pilot for Aboriginal guardianship. We had 13 children in that pilot. Um, they these were kids that were on long term orders, um, and they were, you know, projected to stay permanently in their placements. What we found is when we work with those thirteen children, um, six of those children um, went home. Um, so, if six of those children went home, if you look at fifteen hundred kids, maybe we could get three or four hundred kids home, and we got them home safely. And they're still at home. So the idea, I think, if we for children of colour everywhere, they stay in care longer, more likely to go into care, stay in care longer, and less likely to go home. So if we have the capacity to do the to produce the evidence that you know we can do the work to get children back home, because we know children do much better in their family home or in their communities where they live.
0: And can you um, explain a little bit more how how it works, the out-of-home care program now? It, you, you're marking a change there of how things have been done before. How is it kind of done
4: Generally. I think a lot of our work is around, really around culture, around ensuring children know who they are, where they come from. And all children need to know where they come from, but particularly Aboriginal children. um, If they're going into care and they don't know, you know, their tribe, their nation, their people, they're not connected, they don't know the land. But it's also about, um, you know, a lot of the work is around developing cultural support plans. We're doing a lot of work around return to country. So we have a lot of children in Victoria that don't come from Victoria. So you know, if we're keeping them here, are we keep you know looking after their best interests? Probably not. So the best thing is to find out if they've got family in their communities in their hometown where they come from, and return them home if we can. But it's also important about connection for children. So a lot of our work is around cultural planning, ensuring that children know who they are, and and. All the research from Canada and overseas demonstrates that when children know that and know who they are and where they come from, they develop much, you know, much more psychologically and physically. They develop. Um, or along every domain of child's development
2: and i mean that you'd hope those all these considerations are are very much part of of the royal commission into the juvenile justice system in the northern territory i think anyone who saw four corners a few weeks ago would have been absolutely shocked at the the brutality with which children were treated in those facilities and i wonder looking forward how optimistic you are on on what a Royal Commission there might achieve in in the way that Aboriginal children are are treated in the juvenile justice system or how they even get there in the first place? Because, of course, we had a Royal Commission into um, Aboriginal deaths in custody in the early 90s when that wound up, and that hasn't really seen any substantial change in, in government policy, really. Do you think that this Royal Commission will lead to real change in that area?
4: Look, I think so. I think um, we were very fortunate in Victoria to have an Aboriginal justice agreement and so the Victorian government committed to it. And so we have now um, strong focus on Aboriginal... um, ..you know, on working with the prisons. So we've got a a very strong focus on... um, preventing people coming in and working with people coming out and i think victoria has a really good model around justice other states and territories didn't take up the justice agreement i think to come up with a simple solution to the northern territory is really challenging Mm. um i think that you know we do need to look at you know while young people are in the facility how do they actually restrain i think they need to really look at how do they manage but it will take um a lot of work to look at outside um In the Northern Territory, a number of years ago, I did the um, child protection inquiry, and what we found was just um, systemic failure across every domain, housing, homeless, um, you know, family violence there was just not the level of support for families to prevent families breaking down. Not enough houses, not enough jobs, not enough... The level of poverty in the Northern Territory is, you know, significantly higher than everywhere else. And so Aboriginal people living... Um, you know in remote areas there's so many different um, situations that Aboriginal people outstations you've got you know people living in town camps you've got people living in long grass you've got um, different types and different cultures you've got language issues you've got um, a number remoteness is you know something that really challenges but you've also got um, church and government-based uh, missions and reserves that have been established um, and poorly funded and, and so you know. Know, uh, challenging issues that we never see in victoria mm. and so coming up with a model and quite often we try to put what works in victoria or new south wales and queensland into the northern territory it's not going to work and quite a lot often they they struggle to get workforce so they bring people from england and place overseas to come in and they just can't um, grasp the sheer enormity of the issues that they're dealing with, and so I think to, under, to come up with a simple response, it's it's not logical in the Northern Territory. It needs the whole of, and I think the inquiry will put, and I hope out of the inquiry that you know both Commonwealth and Territory governments will come up with a really good solution.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's hope so, because I mean, is the leadership there in the in the Northern Territory
4: to to see change happen? Um, I think that there needs to be um, a strong leadership. To guide this I I think at present I think there's a real lack of understanding of the complexity and a lack of focus and I think that you know um you know at the moment you've got um people that are you know been in the police and been in the army um making decisions around child welfare and juvenile justice and I think that you know that tends to Put a punitive, um, you know, sort of reflection on it rather than a therapeutic, and and looking at how do you actually, you know, and there's been a massive taking of front end, like working early intervention and doing parenting and support, and putting it all to taking children away, and that's like the ambulance chaser at the bottom of the cliff, waiting for families to drop off, you, and you can see that in the numbers of children that, are, you know, that have skyrocketed in out of home care in the Northern Territory, so. I mean, not that any state is doing absolutely well in that area, but I think Northern Territory, um, I think that there are a number of issues. If they did take all the children that needed to be taken into care, they would be in absolute crisis.
0: And do you feel, we um, I mean, were out of time, Uriel, but I wonder if you feel that having that national program go to air, that the focus that has come on that issue in the Northern Territory is it going to lead us to a good place do you think were you did you welcome that program when when you saw
4: it um on oh, yeah of course i mean it just sort of says that there are systemic issues up there and that we need to as a whole system look at you know the progression from out of home care into juvenile justice and then into criminal justice but when a system treats children like that i mean every when people were seeing i just had you know visions of terrorism in you know guantanamo bay and seeing that water you know tipped on a bag of a child i was thinking that happens in to terrorists not to children and it doesn't happen here in victoria it doesn't happen here in victoria no but um you know i think that this the restraining of children like that putting of bags but that went through parliament and i think that that's dangerous but yeah, I, I do hope that this inquiry will, and I, you know, Four Corners did highlight it, but we do need to have action. Mm.
0: It's always great to have you on Triple R, and looking forward to having you back again soon. And uh, um, Muriel is CEO of Vaca, a Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Agency, and uh, and yeah, they absolutely welcome this um, Royal Commission happening in juvenile oh. justice. But lots going on here in Victoria with regards to um, self determination and treaty as well. And um, we'll catch you again very very Thank soon you. on Triple R. <laughs> this has been a